Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reese Mandel. My name I'm is Jennifer Waits. Oh, hi, Jennifer. <laughs> That's fine. We'll keep it. My name is Eric Klein. We're also here for the love of sound of strong communities. Indeed, we are here. And uh, so today we're going to talk about an interesting radio station and radio show coming out of Troy, New York at WOOCLP, which is housed at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. And they have a daily, hour long news and public affairs show produced by volunteers. And that's hard to pull off. Anyone who's been in community radio knows that, that that's no mean feat to pull off a daily news and public affairs show staffed by volunteers. And we yeah, learned that about covers, it. That covers local issues that brings local voices onto the radio that really, um, you know, does the work that community radio is there to do to, to, to bring these people uh, out into the, into the airwaves onto people's ears uh, so that they think they can hear people from their community talking about issues that they care about. Indeed. So it with multiple pieces every day too, you know. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's kind of mind-boggling to me actually that they're able to do it. It's quite a lot of content that's produced every week. Yeah. So we learned about this and so we wanted to learn more. And it turns out of course, we already know WOOC, uh the station carries Radio Survivor. Um and so I reached out to Steve Pierce uh, who is the executive yeah. director of the Media Alliance, which operates the station. And it's, it's worth mentioning that like what Steve has accomplished and what this radio program, this magazine show that all of these volunteers have accomplished, it's a real it's a real important story in the in the spectrum of low power radio that we here at Radio Survivor um, are covering. It's a it's a unique moment in the history of how radio is made in this country. And what they're doing there at WOOC in Troy, New York, is a great exemplar of of what a low power, a small radio station with a, a budget of almost zero can accomplish well, for its community. And, and it, well, they do it through, and they do it in a particular way. And I think that they structured themselves and they operate in a way that may differ from a lot of low power stations and stations that are looking for for possible alternatives or or different ways that they could go about the business of being a community radio station might find some inspiration or some hints here. And that is another reason why we're, why we're sharing this story. We're on the line from Troy, New York with Steve Pierce. He's the executive director of media Alliance, which owns and operates the sanctuary for independent media there in Troy and also W O O C L P. And we brought Steve on to talk about their independent news magazine program, daily news program, news program that they broadcast on WOOC, the community radio station there in Troy. Thanks for joining us, Steve. My pleasure. I love the show. And I'll admit, I just learned about uh, the Hudson Mohawk magazine, your daily news program, because there was a nice write-up about it in the Neiman Lab reports. And the Neiman Lab is a, a journalism organization out of Harvard University. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, they they publish a lot of nice little studies, and they promote they promote uh, the idea that uh, that journalism has a place in this world. We just have to figure out what it's going to be <laughs> at some point. Indeed, as, as the industry uh, goes through its shifting shifting economics. tides. Yeah, and and I it caught my attention immediately because you know I know that many low power FM stations struggle with being able to provide 
uh, regular news and public affairs uh, programming, especially stuff that's produced locally, to their audiences. And I saw, wow, okay, here's a station that's doing it. Plus, WOOC already knew about you because uh, you carry Radio Survivor program. You're an affiliate. So, uh, Steve, can you tell us more about this show? What is the Hudson Mohawk Magazine? Well, it's called the Hudson Mohawk Magazine because um, we are on the um, about a block away from the Hudson River, uh, the nation's um, largest Superfund site, and uh, it uh, it uh, collides with the Mohawk River, which goes west uh, towards the Great Lakes, uh, not far from here. And so we're the Hudson Mohawk Magazine because uh, that's the geographic and environmental location that we're in. Um, we serve Schenectady, Albany, and Troy. Um, and uh, the magazine is a daily show run by volunteers that covers uh, all different kinds of things, anything that you might want to know, particularly that's local, either because it happened here or because it affects people here or it's related to people here in some way. And so that's, uh, in a nutshell, what it is, an hour a night of news and public affairs, which we also uh, stream and uh, share with a couple of other stations here and then uh, put on SoundCloud and on our website and then put on social media. Not the whole show, although we do put the whole show on. We also put the segments on so that they're shareable via the newfangled interweb. Yeah, I noticed that you did that. And I, I was curious why you both have the, the, the full show and also you're distributing the segments. And, and that's a podcast feed because I saw it available in Apple Podcasts. Well, the reason is that uh, the people who are on the show are the most motivated to share it. And so, uh, you know, if you came in and you did a piece on sailboat racing uh, miniatures on the Hudson and um, had a 10-minute segment about whatever it is you do, uh, you might want to uh, get that uh, file and share it on your own Facebook page with your friends, but uh, maybe not too motivated if it's a 59-minute show that's big and you have to tell people to start listening at 33 minutes in. Um, so we uh, we make it available as an independent podcast, and we're pretty careful to make sure that there's a um, there's a good photo of the either the interviewee or the you know whatever it's about. Uh, and then uh, as soon as people get interviewed, we send them uh, a link to the file, and we hope that they send it on its merry way out into the universe, so that all the folks that they know will find out about what they do, but also will find about find out about what we do. How many segments do you typically have in a show? We do five 10-minute segments a day. Five or 10-minute segments a day. Uh, Steve Pierce at WOOC Low Power FM in Troy, New York. I know from experience that producing this kind of radio, uh, producing this kind of information is um, it's a huge, it's a huge lift. It's a job for a team of people working long hours. How do you accomplish this with a volunteer staff? Well... Uh, we, we don't do five or ten minute segments. We do five ten minute segments. And so uh -huh. the uh, the idea is um, that you know almost anything is interesting for you know ten minutes, even if you don't really care that much about it. That's probably exaggerating a little bit in the current attention span era. But I mean, that's you know we basically thought that we started by doing four fifteen minute segments, and we found that first of all fifteen minutes was too much for most things, and also that uh, we didn't have enough time for uh, uh all the right. content that let we me had. let me jump in and ask a follow-up question then like who decides what's interesting because i think that's a very important i mean you made you made what i think was a joke it might have been uh had a kernel of truth a joke about uh sailboat miniature sailboat racing on the hudson but 
I tuned into your podcast, I know that uh, I heard some really heavy news and information stories that that had a lot more to do with people's um, daily lived experiences than than the the wonderful hobby of sailboat racing. So who decides what's going on on these airwaves? Well, so that's an interesting uh, question. I mean, uh, the people who are the producers are deciding. It's a loose collective of folks. I'll I'll, I'll answer your first question uh, first because it kind of leads to that, but now you're going to have to remind me of the second question because (laughs) I'm old. Um, The way we get volunteers to do it is to try to figure out the most decentralized way possible to organize it. And we had a group of folks who uh, worked on the concept for the show for a long time, trying to figure out uh, how best to organize it so that it didn't require paid staff. Now, I'm paid staff here at the Sanctuary, and I have radio experience as a freelancer for NPR and Pacifica Radio. And so I've done it, and I know how to do it. I used to think I knew all about it, uh, but what I realized was I knew all about it, or I knew a lot about it, uh, back in the old days, it's all different now. And so it's been an incredible learning curve for me to figure out how all the new technology works and how you adjust for the fact that most people or a lot of people aren't hearing you in a radio anymore. Uh, or if they are, it's probably in a car at drive time, most likely. But anyway, uh, so the idea was to figure out how do you get something in motion that doesn't require a whole lot of maintenance Maintenance. Yeah. And when you say something, staff. you're talking about a radio program that is produced by volunteers, just in case someone's yeah. dropping in. On the yeah, well, radio because, right you know, you know, when you talk about volunteers in public radio, a lot of times it's, you're talking about an NPR station that has volunteers answering the phones during pledge drives. And that's a whole lot different than a decentralized staff of people who are motivated and empowered to create their own content. Yeah. And so the first thing, though, that we do is we we have a, a weekly producer meeting every Monday from 707 until however long it takes to schedule the next week of programming. And we have a, a Google spreadsheet that uh, has a grid with uh, five days a week and um, five segments a day and slots for uh, two hosts and an engineer and a helper. Um, And that becomes the basis for deciding what goes on the show. And people come to the station uh, on Monday nights at 7.07 and we sit around and talk about who's got what ideas. and, uh, And for the most part, anybody who has an idea and who can pull it off can do it. And the, the only real uh, filter, the only litmus test is the organizational mission, which is that we use uh, media for social justice and environmental justice purposes. And so if there was ever a conflict about content, we might just say, you know, uh, the station is licensed to us and we're not really in the, you know, the Rush Limbaugh game. Uh, it really has to be something that's in line with our mission. But we surprisingly haven't had too much trouble with uh, folks who are producing content that we don't think is worth sharing, even though a lot of it is stuff that I don't personally agree with. I I sort of compare it to uh, a neighborhood uh, or a community Facebook page that we have here in Troy. It's the Troy Neighborhood Action Coalition. Mm -hmm. And uh, anybody posts anything about whatever's going on. And in in an era where there's almost no news coverage of things that are happening at the neighborhood level, uh, it's the only way you can find out about, you know, why was that police car racing down the street at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning yesterday? Somebody knows why, and they'll post about it. And, you know, so it was kind of an interesting thing where you'd go, wow, there's a whole network of people who are following whatever interests them, and they're sharing it on this page. And you can find out about it, and you basically learn what people's biases are, and you, you decide what to believe and not to believe, but at yeah. least you know that it's happening. Well, it sounds to me, and I think we should get into it maybe later in the conversation, that that what you have there at WOOCLP in Troy, New York, is um, a really, you're, you're very lucky, it sounds like, that you have um, 
a lot of people that that are that are dying to produce radio that have that have come that have come ready to create this content uh, for your station and and uh, probably know what they're doing already with microphones it sounds like well, well I, actually i'm really curious to know okay, i mean how do about pe- those how do people come into the station how do you recruit and how do you train them not very well um <laughs> we uh first of all most people don't know how to do radio um most people who know anything about radio went to a college where there was a college radio station. And so that's a fairly select group of people compared to you know, the universe. Um, and we don't really see too many folks like that. We, we, so we're building on a base that we've been developing for almost 15 years now. We moved into this neighborhood in 2005, and the radio station started in 2016. So in that previous period, we've been developing the infrastructure here in, of an old church that we call the Sanctuary for Independent Media. And there's a performance space and there's editing facilities and, you know, there's, there's, it's a place, it's a physical location. And we've had people coming here for a long time. So some people know about us already. Uh, the radio station has proven to be a huge recruiting tool for volunteers, uh, both getting people in and also getting them to stay because they get to be creative and do cool things. But most of the people who come in don't know anything about audio and many of them don't know anything at all about computers. And so... That's one of the reasons they stay. I mean, they get to do really interesting stuff with technology that they've never touched before, and uh, they can hear it on the radio and they can hear it on the internet. That's so really great. So your so your sanctuary for independent media, your low power FM station, makes spaces for volunteers to to do this work. Well, like I mean, physically, you yeah. have physical. You know, you you've opened the doors to them. It's the they can come in off the street. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, yeah, but you know, so we've had to we've had to be open more than we used to be open. There wasn't much reason for people to come here. It wasn't like a public access center or something. Although we have equipment, it wasn't really set up that way. Though we didn't have a mandate to be open to anyone for anything. Yeah. So we were open when we had events and all that. Now that we have a daily news show, it actually created some. You know, in spite of our efforts to reduce the impact on the host organization, uh, we're open now from one till eight every weekday because. The show is on from six to seven, and we have to be here for people to come uh-huh. in and do their interviews and all that. So this, I'm sure it, this news magazine sounds like it sort of has um, injected a lot of new energy and and volunteer work into the station uh, for good and and for uh, for complications. Jennifer, you had a question. Oh uh, well, and is, and is that what is luring? Because you mentioned that most people are coming in without audio backgrounds, so. I'm curious then, what is luring them to come volunteer at a radio station? Is it that they're hearing the magazine show? What What is kind of setting them in motion to try their hand at audio when they've never done it before? Well, a lot of times what, what we're finding is the radio station, we didn't really know what we were going to do with the radio station when we applied for it. I was a uh, media activist for a long time uh, before this and had worked with Prometheus Radio Project in the early days of LPFM. So I, I've been passionate about LPFM. But when we got ours, we thought, oh, my God, you know, I actually remember when the application window opened, uh, uh, thinking, do I really want a radio station? What would I do with it? Or, you know, what would we do with it? And I thought, you know what? We're probably not going to get it anyway, so let's just apply for it and worry about it later. And uh, shazam, you know, we got a radio station. And for, for the first while that we, that we were on the air, we were running an automated mix of music that I own. I have a huge world music and reggae collection. And I thought, well, you know, this is cool. I mean, this is stuff that nobody else is airing. So even though it's not the most compelling radio radio in the world, it's great 
music. Yeah. And maybe maybe it's just... time for you to tell us a little bit about what's going on in Troy, New York, for lis- for listeners outside of of the region. Um, what was the media landscape like in the town in which you're located? Oh, it's like everybody else's media landscape. You know, it's uh, corporate journalism, uh, such that it is, and chain, you know, broadcasters, television stations, radios, consolidation, you know, all that, uh, a, a shrinking world uh, view. Uh, Do you have much me- in the way of like uh, community or, uh, or say college radio uh, available to you there? Um, there's, I went to college, I went to grad school at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and they have a venerable student run radio station, uh, which I was very active in as a grad student. Um, there's also a great station at the, um, University of Albany. Um, uh, it's actually a hundred watt station, but they get a much higher antenna height, uh, in the class that they're in. So you can hear that all around. And, you know, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of good college radio stations. There is an NPR station that, uh, has many, many, many repeaters. It covers the whole Northeast mm-hmm. and, uh, it is what it is. It's an NPR station and people love it. Some people love it. But the, the problem that they have is that because they have so many repeaters everywhere, they can't be local to anyone. Right. So they, they have like a Great Barrington, Massachusetts Bureau and a bureau here and a bureau there. But because they're covering so much territory, the bureaus are only you know, generating like one story a day. Uh, it's almost a pro forma uh, model of coverage. And other than that, there's a classical music NPR station that doesn't do much. And then the vast, undifferentiated sea of corporate crap that, uh, you know, that we know as radio today, destroyed by Clear Channel here as everywhere. So is, and, it, uh, is, it, is it fair to say then that there hasn't been much in the way of local news coverage, particularly on the radio, prior to you putting WOC on the air? Well, I don't know, because uh, who, who, I, would, I would hesitate to say that, because maybe in, at some time and place there was more local radio news. But I'm, but I'm talking about now. But certainly I'm talking not about, recently. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about, you know, when, when, you, when you put it on the air in, in, the, in the preceding decade, you know, post-1996 Telecommunications Act era. Right. Yeah, no, there's, nobody does it. It's too expensive. Yeah. To pay people, which is, and, and we know that already. We knew that coming in. It's like, okay, we can't, we can't afford to pay for this. So how are we going to motivate people to do this on a volunteer basis? And so one thing was to say, okay, first of all, let's be clear about what we're doing and what we're not doing. We are providing activist-oriented local news that, uh, sh- that uh, shares the work of people around the region with other people in the region. That's what we're doing. It's not like we always have, that's not that we always have that on the radio, but that's our goal. And that we want to... Um, you know, we want to be open to different points of view and perspectives and all that, but we want to be true to who we are. We're activists. We are looking for a channel for social justice information and culture. Uh, we use it a lot ourselves. We, uh, we interview artists who are coming here. Dar Jamal was interviewed here on the radio station. Uh, we have people, uh, any, we have our own staff people talking about what we're doing. It's, you know, it could sound a little bit like an internal uh, communication mechanism right because time. you're attached to this this media center which which holds events and talks and things as well so you have you have multiple uh, kind of places for pe- for people to gather there um, right. and it, and it's very unlikely you know there's this traditional model I don't know traditional but a you know popular model of low power FM or community radio where it's like public access radio which I decided early on is not viable in the hundred watt um, contemporary media environment. There's just not enough people who are willing to listen to anything that happens to come on the air uh, within the coverage range that we have. There has to be more of a focal point. 
And so, you know, I started to tell you, uh, we started with a world music format 24-7. And uh, a lot of people noticed and said, hey, this is cool. We've never heard anything like this on the radio. And I thought, okay, we'll score one for us. It's not costing us anything, and it's pretty easy to do. And we're having some impact, although not as much as I'd like. And we started thinking after a couple of years, what you know, we wanted to do news. We wanted to do more, but, you know, we're not trying to do 24-7 news or anything like that. We're just doing one hour a day, which is huge, as you noted earlier. Yeah. And we were set about trying to figure out how we could do that and how we could make it sustainable. And, uh, and also why we're doing it, because it really is it's as much about getting out news and information about what's happening here as it is about bringing people from the community into our radio station. What we found almost by accident, although I think we knew somewhere in the back of our minds that uh, this would be a powerful development tool. If you were to call somebody up at an organization and say, hey, would you mind driving over here and come talk to us for a little while about um, how you could help us with what we're doing? They'd say, no, we're busy. We're not doing that. But if you call them up and say, would you like to come over and talk about what you're doing there? Uh, anybody would come and do that. It, and they do. come and talk about it on the radio. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they come here and they go, oh, wow, this is a cool place. How long have you been here? We never heard of you. You know, it becomes this incredible outreach tool because it's based on the self-interest of the people you're trying to involve. Right. And we have to be careful about who you invite in because of that organizing principle. Uh, but we found that that also works for volunteers. So the people who come in here and do radio segments do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And so we have people who are interested in environmental programming, and we have people who are interested in labor, and we have people who are interested in food and, uh, you know, organic gardening or whatever it is. And they come in and they do what they're interested in, and we put it on the radio. And that voice you heard and- is Steve Pierce. He is executive director of the Media Alliance, which owns and operates a sanctuary for independent media in Troy, New York, and low-power community radio station WOOC there. And we're talking about the station's daily news and public affairs program, Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is Radio Survivor. My name is Paul Reismanel, and I'm joined by Eric Klein and by Jennifer Waits. Uh, Jennifer, you had a question. Uh, well, and you were you were talking about how inviting people in to be guests is often, in a way, a recruiting tool. So is that one of the primary ways that that people have come to join your station by simply being invited in? Or what are the other reasons, you know, like I had asked asked earlier, you have a lot of folks who didn't have any sort of audio background. So what's yeah. motivating them to join the station? Well, definitely some of them come in because they were asked in to be interviewed and they say, wow, this is cool. I'd like to be a part of it. It's a great, it's a great culture that we, that we have here. Um, it, the diversity of it ebbs and flows, but it's much more diverse than the general population uh, would suggest. And so there's lots of uh, older people, there's lots of young people, college kids, just regular folks, uh, black, white, you know, it's, it's diverse. And so it's, it, and it's, it's pretty much fun. There's not a whole lot of the squabbling that you get sometimes in diverse environments. So, you know, people have come in because they, uh, they uh, enjoyed being on the air and they thought, you know, that it might be useful for them, uh, either creatively or because they have something that they want to do. I don't know exactly where the others come in. One of our regular hosts uh, goes out and does motivational speaking. Has become kind of his radio segment has helped him become more successful as you know, he's helping him get his get the word out about what he does. And so when he goes places, he talks about what he's doing. And you know, we just had a kid come in last night who who uh, was in the class that um, 
there was a discussion about us and he decided to come here and he's going to become an intern. We have a lot of interns. It's, uh, that's been growing. We have about 50 or 75 people who are involved uh, with, the, with the news program. It's by far the largest core group of volunteers that we have here. And the, the, the news show becomes an organizing principle around which it all uh, revolves. Mm -hmm. that's, a so large number, that's a large number even for a non-low-power FM radio station. That's a healthy amount of uh, volunteer radio producers for a one-hour-a-day program. Uh, yeah, kudos, they're kudos not all active. They're not all active. I mean, there are people who you know come in occasionally, who used to come and don't anymore, but still identify with us. You know, there's there's two groups of, uh, well, uh, you had asked me earlier about how we organize things, how the editorial decisions are made. And as I said, we don't really, it's not like there's an editorial board that decides what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. It's basically a very loose initiation where you come to one of these meetings to see what's going on and um, hear how the, the editorial process such that it is, is like, oh my God, we have, a, we have a hole in the show tomorrow. What are we going to put in? And we have three holes on Thursday, and you know, and it's like we're plugging stuff in. And if people want to produce something, and it doesn't sound like a terrible idea uh, to most people, uh, you know, it's kind of a it, there's it's in a it's in a strange development state where there's not so much pressure on it from people wanting to get in yeah. that hard decisions have to be made. Well, it sounds it sounds to me like uh, showing up on Monday evening is the is the prerequisite for being an edit an editor. Well, that's actually become the entry point for everyone who wants to do anything with us, because it's a it's a it's our only standing meeting. It's you know we have to do it every week because if we didn't, we wouldn't know what we were doing that week. And so anybody who comes here who wants to get involved with anything, we say come to the meeting at seven oh seven on Monday. You'll meet a lot of people. You'll learn about the radio station. The great thing about about radio and the news show and uh, radio in general and the news show in particular is that. There are so many different things to do. You can do social media, you can do engineering, you can do uh, PR, you can do, uh, you know, whatever. And, and then even beyond that, if you look at it from the content perspective, there is an endless amount of subjects to be covered. So if anyone is interested in anything, they can participate. <laughs> so that's a pretty wide net. Uh, but also it serves, you know, we, we don't have, we're just about to hire a volunteer coordinator because of the yeah, demand on us. Uh, but so in, what I learned in my years in community radio is the stations that don't have volunteer coordinators or somebody whose job it is to be nice to people and find out uh, why they're there and why they're not coming anymore or whatever, you get a lot of type A personalities who don't need the care and feeding. And that's great. You know, a lot of my friends, I've met that way, but it's not ideal. I mean, you really would rather have an environment where somebody's noticing and appreciating and helping people who are coming. Yeah. In yeah. You don't want to exclude the shy uh, just, uh, you know, by default. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, you know, Steve, I wanted to follow up on a point you made uh, about sort of programming philosophy. You sort of said in passing that you didn't think that sort of the public access model of community radio was necessarily a good fit for Low Power FM or for what you're trying to do there at WOOC in, in Troy, New York. And so I, I, wanted to, I wanted to pull on that a little bit more. So with regard to the rest of the programming on the station, it, what does that look like? Um, you know, we're talking about the one-hour news program you do uh, every day, the uh, Hudson Mohawk magazine. What, what's the rest of the programming like on the station? Well, um, as I told you, originally it was 24-7 um, music of the diaspora, basically reggae right. and African pop. Um, we then started putting in uh, sort of the cream of the crop of the Pacifica Affiliates Network, including this show. 
uh, because there's a lot of great content that isn't being heard. And we wanted news and public affairs during drive time. We knew that that was a good format to have. Uh, people are in the car, they want to listen, and they want to listen to something they can't hear anywhere else. And so we have, uh, during morning drive from 6 to 10 and from 3 to 7, uh, really great stuff. Democracy Now!, which we air three times a day, and, uh, and then a lot of other stuff, you know, Making Contact, all the shows that have been around forever and that are fantastic. So these are all news and public affairs talk shows. So in terms of, so is there still music on, on the air? Yeah, well, so what we do is we have uh, uh, news and public affairs Monday through Friday, uh, uh, 6 a.m. to 10, and uh, 3 p.m. to 7. And uh, reggae and world music uh, around it, otherwise. And, and, and is that all automated or is that hosted? No, it's all automated. So, so I'm kind of narrowing in here on, on this sort of programming philosophy, which is one, you know, you seem to be working more on what we would call a public service model than a public access model, I think. Um, and what's interesting to me is that it seems like one of the reasons that you have all this energy around the Hudson Mohawk magazine is because it's the principal way that someone can be involved on air at WOOC. And, you know, rather than I can have my hour or two hours of, of playing freeform music or, you know, a more specific genre based show, it sounds to me like if people want to be on, on the radio there in Troy, well, this is the way they're going to be on radio. Is, is my, is my uh, approximation there correct? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to knock the freeform uh, oh, radio sure. idea, yeah. but, I, but we don't do it. We decided right. that we were going to... I, I've been doing this long enough to where I remember the days before automation, where we had what was called warm body radio, which is, oh my God, there's a hole in, on Tuesday morning uh, from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Who can we get to fill it? And you just had like a lot of really terrible programming on the air because you just had to take whoever you got. And so it was a patchwork quilt of programming, a lot of which didn't make sense and it didn't flow. You're really daring people to listen to it. So and this although there's, there's some great stuff in there. We decided, you know what, we're not going to do that. We're going to have a format, for better or worse, uh, although this is a cool format. It's nothing you can hear anywhere else. Uh, and we're going to put all of our organizational resources into one hour a day during drive time. And then we're going to repeat it twice the next day. So that's it's just strategic. We don't have the resources. And yeah. even the resources to worry about why somebody didn't show up on Tuesday to do whatever or, you know, who used the last of the toilet paper. You know, all the things you got to worry about when you have a lot of people around all the time. We thought, you know, we're not going to do it. We're just going to do that uh, five days a week, one hour a day. And then who knows what comes next? It's a, Hopefully it's, we'll develop a core of skilled producers who are interested in doing more stuff. This is a long-term view, though. What will we do next? And it won't be one show on one day. It's going to be a block. You know, we've learned enough about how radio works and how it's and what it's becoming. There's no appointment radio. You know, oh, I want to listen to the polka show. It's Wednesday night at 10. People don't do that. It's pretty much got to be broad strokes. It's the reggae and African pop station that has cool news and public affairs during drive time and this great local news show three times a day, an hour. So what I'm so hearing, what, what I'm hearing, Steve Pierce, uh, executive director of Media Alliance, there at WOOCLP in Troy, New York, is this, um, you know, from like where I'm coming from as a listener is I understand, uh, I understand some public affairs uh, community radio stations that that focus on news and public affairs as well as music, but have much larger uh, broadcast areas and can can sort of pull from a uh, from a, a bigger urban area, and um, 
what I'm hearing is that your low power FM station sort of takes that model of, of volunteer programmers producing lots of content and condensing it down to uh, everyone contributing to one uh, what's information rich hour where the segments are, are shorter necessarily. There's probably a lot of editing going on, um, either post-production editing after the fact of the recording or pre-production editing, like uh, focusing down on what's important. And what's really fun about that, uh, what, what what is ex- exciting about talking to you today, to me, is that this is like a new way to run a radio station, to my mind. New way to run a community radio yeah, station. Yeah, new way to run a community radio station, to my mind. And that's what the promise of Low Power FM uh, was, as Paul Reismandel described it to me five years ago, that, that these are going to be experiments in the form and new ways of doing the work are going to come out and we're going to see which ones, uh, which ones people like, which ones are fun to do, which ones succeed and, uh, and, and contribute something to the community so that they're, uh, so that they're sustained. And I, I, this is a cool model. I'm, I'm glad we're learning about it today. You know, Steve, well, sorry, go ahead. But I have enough experience to have seen the worst case scenarios, and I'm sort of considering myself the professional worst case scenarist here. I've yeah, been we call ourselves Radio Survivor. The brand is the brand is Pardon? a little bit. Well, we call ourselves Radio Survivor. The brand is a little bit uh, beaten, right? Yeah. There's there's a little <laughs> bit of uh, there's bruises on these on these shoulders. Well, well, you know, I mean, I think this is an interesting model in particular because I know that many low-power FMs, especially in smaller communities that are not in a big metroplex, struggle with filling those 168 hours. And often stations are looking for models to follow. And and some of the the, the longest-term models are that community access model, that public access yeah. model, where you fill it up with volunteers who bring whatever programming to bear that they want to do. And, you know, I've... I've written about some of the, the pitfalls of that, both from uh, an organizational standpoint and a listener standpoint. The audience doesn't know what's going on day right. to day. And, and taking some flack because sometimes you know people uh, who are doing that sort of radio think that I'm singling them out for criticism. And my view has always been, no, I'm not, actually, if it's working for your station. If, if, if you're able to make that model work and, you, and you're able to sustain it and have a listenership and bring in the, the kind of funding you need to, to, to keep it going on, then it's working for you. And I have no beef with you. It's rather when I think when stations feel like that's what they have to do and have difficulty in sustaining it because they have difficulty having enough volunteers and enough people to, to fill the air. When they have difficulty then bringing in the listenership, which, which then is their donor base. Um, that's when I'm like, well, thinking about these other models. And I think it's interesting to me how you really focused on your drive time. You're focusing on the time when we know there's peak radio listening, that there's no, everyone in the industry knows this. And so you're making sure to highlight both your local programming, which is the Hudson uh, Mohawk Magazine, a one hour daily news program, in addition to highlighting for you what are important syndicated programs like like Democracy Now! Um, and, and, and delivering to your audience a consistent listening experience, really, that is more public service oriented and yet What's nice to me about it is that you've mixed in the ability to have public access. If I'm yeah. somebody who lives in the Troy area and I'm interested in getting involved in radio, it sounds like I can get involved and that there's a fairly low barrier to eventually getting a piece I produce on the air. And, and that, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, there's, I'm going to just throw out a, a few things if I can if I can do it fast enough. 
One thing is we decided early on that because the uh, stalwarts of the community radio movement, the Wysos and the Warts and you know all, all these stations that were that were so inspirational to me when I was younger, because they were having trouble surviving, duplicating their model at a hundred watt station seemed insane. It can't be done anymore that way. Even at the larger stations, it's hard, but you can't run a small station that way, you know, except in some communities where there's exceptional conditions that make it possible. So one of the things about these um, free format stations is you have to look at the engine that drives them. And it's they're driven by the self-interest of the producers. And you string together multiple producers, each of whom are concerned about their own shows. And that drives the thing along. But it becomes difficult to listen to unless you have enough management to make it work. And we knew that we couldn't afford the management to make it work. So we had to simplify the, the way the engine works. Our engine is that we have a solar-powered radio transmitter uh, that's at a, on a hillside where we have no rent, and our studio is in a building we own. You know, it's all about keeping the cost down. There's no paid staff dedicated to the radio station, although I've spent a fair amount of my time as executive director, you know, kind of watching over it. But every time I do something, I say to myself, oh, my God, there's a paid staff person doing this. This isn't sustainable. And, huh. uh, and we try to figure out ways that that doesn't happen because it's so easy to start throwing money at the problem that all of a sudden you go out of business because you can't afford it. There's not enough money coming in. So, so the idea and the other thing about the self-interest is, you know, it's toxic. The Pacifica stations are the worst. Uh, these people have been on the air for 75 years and they don't care about anything but their own show. You know, some, you know, I love some of them, but that's just the, you know, that's the price you pay for running it that way. Tough love so, and, for radio. Jennifer. Yeah. So, what, so what I would say that we've done is when people come in, they can come on, but they don't get their own, they don't get their own slot. If somebody comes in and says, I want to do a two hour weekly show about whatever, I'll go, okay, well, come in on Monday at 7.07 and let's talk about doing a 10 minute segment. And most of those people yeah. say, 10 minutes? I don't want to do 10 minutes. I want to do two hours. And I say, well, if you won't do 10 minutes, we're not going to let you do two hours. Yeah, and they you, go away. You have to, you gotta, you have to you work well with others. before you can walk. And, yeah. you, and you have to be able yeah. to communicate in a room with a group of people who are already are stakeholders in this community project. You can't, you can't feel like a... Uh... Well, in community, community is really what you're talking about, that it's a community project and that the community is the focus of the program. And, and with that in mind, you know, you're thinking about all these brand new low power FMs, I'm really interested in how you're extending that community by collaborating with other low power FM stations. I know you have an idea for a local news radio network in mind where you're perhaps sharing programming. So yeah. could you explain how you're extending that model even further? Well, you know, it's a heavy lift. I'm not sure... <laughs> I'm not sure we can do any of this stuff. I mean, we were, somehow we're doing the... Uh, people are shocked that we're that the radio, the news show, the Hudson Moog Magazine, is still continuing after, you know, almost two years. Uh, right. Shocked uh, because it, it's a volunteer-run effort, really. Yeah, like. it's hard. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a lot of work. Uh, it's work. Uh, the network idea uh, stems from the fact that when we first um, started, um, a number of local organizations applied for the same frequency. Uh, and uh, when... The results of the applications uh, uh, were announced. We, we saw that there were all these stations that were piled on one frequency, and uh, we learned from Prometheus Radio Project that one possible solution for everybody would be to unstack them into other frequencies that had not been applied for. And we were shocked to find, we thought there'd be an onslaught of religious broadcasters applying for frequencies. And there were almost none 
there were almost no applications and there were multiple frequencies. And so of the four applicants, I think there were four applicants, one went away and the three moved to other frequencies, one in Schenectady, one in Albany and one out in the woods somewhere in Rensselaer County. And, and, um, and we helped them uh, fundraise to buy transmitters and uh, antennas and Petri dish came out and helped uh, put them on the air. They're not all on the air yet, but the idea is that all these folks who were competing for uh, frequencies are instead co uh, collaborating. And the idea is what we'll do eventually, this is already happening with the station that's run by um, Troy Bike Rescue, uh, which I, their organization is actually across the street from us, and one, uh, but the transmitters in Schenectady, and and huh. they simulcast us um, during the. We we also we we did start one. Uh, this is kind of a side note. We did start one traditional radio show, which is our jazz sanctuary. We we realized that there's no jazz. You know, public radio is abandoning jazz, and so we thought, okay, let's have a week. Let's have a daily three-hour jazz show. And it'll be locally focused, focus on local jazz musicians, local jazz clubs, local jazz events, and hmm. try to be the place that everybody goes to for jazz. And I know there's no money in that. You can't do it. That's why everybody's abandoning it. But if you have a solar powered transmitter and the guy is letting you use the space for free for, for the site and you already have the office space and you have the studio, you can program jazz. If you have volunteer programmers who come in, and there's a, actually a lot of folks who are passionate about jazz who come in and volunteer. So anyway, uh, the station is connected. He simulcasts um, the Hudson Walk magazine from 6 to 7, and then also simulcasts the jazz programming, so the live stuff that we do. And they uh, have their own automation uh, the rest of the time. And we're, in some ways, that's just biding time until we develop the capacity to do more production. That's a yeah, you're creating so much content. I would imagine that since you tease out all of these five-minute pieces, that those could also be shared with other local stations too. Well, we hope to. You know, you asked, you'd asked me earlier how you know how people do you know how do they learn production and all that, and I think this is important. I tell people when they come in, don't don't stress that. Don't stress about it. Uh, we have on every show we have two hosts and an engineer. So if you want to do a show, it could be as easy as you call somebody who's interested in organic gardening and ask him if he'll come on, he or she will come on the radio station to talk about organic gardening. Write 10 questions and give them to the host. And you have just become a producer. You've just, you're, you're, the, you're a segment producer. You identified <laughs> the guest, you developed some questions, and they just show up at, at 6 o'clock. And our hosts, who are here anyway... We'll, re mm -hmm. we'll ask them the questions that the person who actually knows something about organic gardening and the person does a 10-minute segment. There's so it's like no a mentor. You, you have sort of like a ready-built mentor in there, but the way you do it is you jumpstart the process. You tell somebody, come in with questions, and in many ways that host is the mentor because they're, they're showing your, your new producer uh, you know, the ropes, but as they do it, you know, because they probably... It's, it's, it's better than that, actually. You don't have to come in. You can email the <laughs> you questions. Just listen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's nice. You could, uh, I could do a, you could do a weekly show on WOOC. You could, if you would just. Well, we uh, do, I think. Hey, good point. <laughs> you personally, I'd, not the collective. I mean, you know, just uh, whatever you're interested in, you know, flying kites. Uh, you would just yeah. have to uh, make arrangements for the, per for people around the country who are interested in flying kites to make themselves available for an interview and email in 10 questions. And our host will call the person yeah. and ask them the questions. And they'll, they'll ask their own questions too, but. You know, people panic about not having the next question to ask, so that it's like a crush. That's great. A lot and of I, times, people don't even use them. I want to. So some of the programming is live. Is that um, that was something I was wondering about as I was listening to some of the shows. There were some that felt like they were entirely live. 
Could you yeah, explain I mean, that? It, it varies. They're not usually entirely live. There's usually, it's usually uh, segments. What I, I just gave you the, you know, like the, the lowest uh, barrier of entry, which is just, you know, identify somebody interesting and tell us the questions, ask them, and we'll do it for you. But the other thing you could do, and I said, you know, I'd say, but keep it simple. You don't want to do a 10 minute long documentary with multiple voices and, you know, uh, complex sound mixes and all that. Go out with an H1 Zoom to a rally or anything yeah. and find somebody who seems interesting and talk to them for 10 minutes. Yeah. Try not to make it 11 and try not to make it 9. Just talk to them for 10 minutes. Listen to what they say so that you can ask an intelligent question to follow up on what they just answered. And your piece is done. Yeah, make it simple. And it's better you don't need than, to know how to edit. And, then it, and because you left the room and went to the place... Uh, and talked to the person you've already you've already out distanced um the majority of corporate media you know yeah. you've 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 accomplished a superpower of community media which is which is bringing in the microphone uh, out into the street to talk to the person that that is oftentimes being ignored i want to celebrate one other thing that you just mentioned though that i love that um that your low power fm station in troy new york is uh, forming loose re coalitions relationships with the other uh low power radio stations in your community both to share content but also to um just to just to support each other and i think that's a very exciting thing about low power fm that's bubbling up now as it's as it's growing older is that we have so many regional low power fm stations that are that are making these connections with each other uh because they're close together because they draw from the same wells yeah, there's a, our dream is to, do, you know, certainly do it. Doing it locally is just a pragmatic thing. We're in Troy. We only reach most of Troy and some of Albany, but we need to reach all of Troy, all of Albany, all of Schenectady to be viable, really, as an information source for people, a cultural source, because people don't look to see where they are to decide where they tune into the radio, at least not on a micro level like that. So it's, it's, you know, we have to be able to cover the entire region and because you can't do it with 100 watt stations, a network of stations uh, that does that would be great. It has the added advantage of being able to go local at some parts of the day and to go regional at others and national at others. I mean, it's a little bit of an organizing challenge, but with automation today, it's pretty easy to do that. But there's also a string of low power FMs and a couple of full power stations. Uh, I know that you've been to the, to the one in Hudson, which is great. Yeah. From from Troy, which is the tip of the Hudson River estuary, all the way down to New York City. And wouldn't it be great if you could or organize a network of interest along those lines? Because, you know, we're all downstream. We need to know what's getting put in the water up here if you're living down in New York City. And Literally. we want to know what's going on there. Yeah, yeah, that's a really that's a really exciting notion. And I'm sure uh, if, if you haven't started working on it yet, uh, low power FM radio stations along the Hudson River. Uh, I sure hope I sure hope you start next week. So we're talking about community radio and doing public affairs and news and and sort of the uh, the thing that kicked off this conversation is the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, which is a locally produced hour long news and public affairs program heard Monday through Friday on WOOCLP in Troy, New York, which is housed at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Yeah, completely volunteer. Yeah, uh, like uh, sounds like 110 percent. Yeah, volunteer and collectively magazine. run and collectively yeah. edited too, which is fantastic. And and to learn more about this and to participate in this discussion, we're talking with Steve Pierce, who's the executive director of the Media Alliance there in Troy, New York. I'm Paul Reismandel. This is Radio Survivor. I'm joined by Eric Klein, whose voice you just heard, and Jennifer Waits. And and Steve, 
I wanted to learn a little bit more about about the Sanctuary for Independent Media, uh, where the station is housed. Um, I think you mentioned that the that that space opened up in like two thousand or in six. Is that correct? We started in two thousand and five. We actually are an outgrowth. We're an outgrowth of the indie media movement. We started. Uh, there, there's a loose group of video producers who uh, met uh, for a while in the public library, and then we got an office in uh, uh, the downtown YWCA, and we were doing anti-war videos uh, back in the day when the Iraq war seemed to most people like a really good idea, mm-hmm. and uh, we were trying to put out, uh, you know, a counter-narrative. And uh, one of our most most of the voices on the non-community media. So I know the sanctuary sounded familiar to... to me, Steve, because you know I was involved in indie media in Urbana Champaign, and I did some of the national and global organizing as well. So I think our 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 emails have crossed, if yeah. not our paths, at some point. So I so... think I stayed at your house at one point. Uh, I think there was a uh, there might have been a Cuban. Uh, wireless conferences. There's some reason I went to Champaign-Urbana. And by the way, I was totally inspired by uh, the work there to, when you guys bought the post office, I thought, holy moly, that's incredible. It's a huge building right downtown, taking a piece of the federal government back and turning it into a community resource. is incredible. Radio station, all those things. That's really, that vision has really driven what we've done here since. Wow, Paul, you're going to have to tell us that story sometime soon and i may not be the best narrator yeah. for it um but i can find that person but so so maybe uh we'll, we'll backtrack a little bit just to getting back to sort of 2005 when uh the seeds were sort of started to be sown for the sanctuary for independent media so you were sort of you, you were inspired and grew out of the independent media center movement which was a a, a, a grassroots radically grassroots independent media center yeah, movement and- that kind of came to f- fruition at the WTO, and I also want to underline clearly: uh, two years into the never-ending Iraq War is a significant, right. you know, media moment. So yeah, this is your inspiration. People already doing the work, right? Making anti-war videos, and I assume distributing them online, probably through indiemedia.org websites, because YouTube didn't exist yet. Um, and so, what? What? How did this coalesce into into what is this sanctuary for independent media? Well, so one of the one of the video we did a series of short videos, and what we were trying to do is uh, show uh, uh, local uh, activism and organizing to to support the movement, the social justice movement. And uh, we produced a video called "Independent Meeting in a Time of War," which was a video of a talk that Amy Goodman did uh, mm-hmm. uh, from Democracy Now early in in her career there, uh, where she really uh, she talked about what was happening uh, in the early days of the Iraq war, how the news media were completely complicit in a lie. Cheerleaders. And uh, cheerleaders, at, at, at best, or, uh, liars, you know, yeah. and really manipulating it. It was incredible. And people, there was this, there was this uh, collective cognitive dissonance that people who were out there knew that there was something terribly wrong with the narrative that they were hearing everywhere in the corporate media, and even in the public media. And uh, this talk by Amy, which we took and edited with samples of what she was talking about into a video, took off. People, it was like people would, would, um, would buy them and, and send them to their friends. They'd say, hey, this is what I'm talking about. I'm not crazy. The, we're being manipulated into this war. And, and that video... You, I love it. When you say took off, a video that took off, it's important to remind people that there was no YouTube. Well, that, actually, that's a that's a, a little detour. There, a good friend of ours is uh, Dee Dee Halleck, who's an innovator in the uh, independent uh, video world. And and you know, back then it was the Portapacks and uh, 
Uh, it was even pre-VHS. It was three-quarter video. And, and when, you, when, you distributed, <laughs> when you distributed your video, what you did was you would go from town to town, and they'd set up 50 chairs, and there'd be people yeah. staring at a monitor. Yeah. And uh, and you'd go if you wanted to reach 500 people, you'd have to go, you know, to 10 cities. Uh, and so uh, we we did a video uh, a collaboration with uh, WikiLeaks uh, from uh, the that notorious uh, helicopter gunship uh, video of the journalists getting murdered in New Baghdad. Uh, we did a we actually videotaped a talk of the soldier who was part of that wow. and cut it together with the helicopter footage. Same kind of idea. He's talking about what happened and we're showing it happened from the helicopter gunship. That yeah, video is, has... In, in case people aren't familiar, it's uh, just the devastating... Collateral murder. A devastating video that shows uh, civilians being uh, torn to pieces by, by a helicopter gunship by the U.S. military. Uh, really turned the tide, um, really made WikiLeaks... Um, uh, a hero of the anti-war movement in the early aughts. Uh, uh, what a what a long road to this moment where, Wik- where WikiLeaks sort of uh, might throw a different set of emotions into our minds. But I just wanted to. Well, people should think critically about uh, how much you know what has changed and what hasn't. If you're interested yeah. in that video, by the way, if you there's still the WikiLeaks uh, website collateralmurder.org is still up, and ours there's three videos there. Ours is the third one. Uh, mm. There's you know millions of hits on it. Uh, Didi said two and a half million views. That's a lot of chairs. Uh, she's been there long enough to, to really, uh, in the, in, in the field long enough to, to know how much things have changed with YouTube. I mean, and how little things have changed also. What I love here. I don't remember how we got, oh, we were talking about the creation myth. Well, Steve, Uh, I wanted, I wanted to just sort of, I wanted to pop in here. I I love how this is coming together. This is a narrative we've been talking about and maybe you've heard it on our show. Um, we've been sort of developing over the last, uh, few months, you know, in in light of the fact that um, this year is the 20th anniversary of the Battle of Seattle, of the the WTO protests that that spawned um, the Independent Media Center movement, and then you know the, the next January in, in 2020 is the 20th anniversary of the birth of Low Power FM as an actual licensed radio service, and we talk about how these are forces that all came together, which was public access TV people or people who are working in uh, a grassroots video and grassroots film. Essentially the second decade of the internet's uh, you know, impact on our culture. Right. And, and, and coming together with, with geeks and nerds who are making new web technologies, coming together with people who were, who were interested in radio and that, that it broke down a lot of uh, silos, if you will, that, that, that sort of existed uh, prior. Uh, folks started working together and we're seeing how, it's interesting to me, you're talking about how you had a video collective there in Troy, New York, uh, which now you know came together to create this this uh, media center, which I'll let you finish that story. Which now owns a radio station. Um, you know, we we see almost the, the, this uh, catalyzation in in action. But you know, so yeah. you you were doing this this video work, um, and at some point you decided that to to sort of formalize things and to have a have a media center. Well, uh, what happened was that we. Uh uh, that video of Amy Goodman speaking um, in, in, called Independent Meeting in a Time of War, which you can find by Googling that, um, Amy used uh, at her talks all around the country at the time, and she was selling them for 10 bucks or something like that, and we got a dollar from each one. And that made twenty or $30,000, and when wow. we got kicked out of the YWCA in downtown Troy, we had a little bit of money. And a friend of ours had bought a church in a part of Troy that 
a lot of folks in Troy don't want to go to, and uh, uh, the folks who live there kind of would like to get out of. Uh, and uh, he didn't remember why he bought it, but he knew that he didn't want to have it anymore. So he let us rent it for a while, and we thought, oh, my God, you know, this is a, a huge step. You know, I don't know if we should do it or not. And we thought, what's the worst that can happen? We've got some money in the bank. We'll have it for a year, and then we won't have it anymore. And this was right around the time that, uh, that uh, of the uh, Champaign-Urbana uh, Independent Media Center. Yeah, uh, Urbana-Champaign, uh, Illinois, yeah. Yeah, which bought, a, which bought a post office. I mean, if they can buy a post office, we can buy a church. Actually, we weren't thinking about buying it at the time. We just used it. And what we, what we, what we did was we, uh, we used the upstairs part of the church to do, as did the uh, uh, Urbana-Champaign group, to do fundraising. So we'd do screenings, music, films, uh, speakers, whatever. Uh, and uh, gradually what happened was that the organization morphed into being more of a presenting arts organization with a radical bent. And, you know, it's a long story, which, you know, we can uh, cover in part uh, 27 of this interview. But um, the uh, we've become something else. We've grown into something else. We yeah. own um, three buildings on our block. We have an outdoor stage where we do presenting. We're building a, an environmental center down the block. We have gardens. Uh, the inspiration that we got from uh, uh, Urbana Champagne um, uh, in terms of doing this uh, was combined with the inspiration of going to an allied media conference in Detroit and realizing what can be done in an area where the property has no value. You can own it. And if you do that, you can do something with it and you can keep it, even if the situation on the ground changes. And so it's really been a, a really exciting adventure that, uh, that charts the, the course of independent media and grassroots organizing. That's a great story, Steve. Uh, I'm so glad we had a chance to to catch up and to learn more about WOOC in Troy, New York, and your program, Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and about the uh, Sanctuary for Independent Media, where the radio station lives. Um, God, there's so much more here to talk about. Uh, we'll definitely want to circle back with you because we're hoping to launch a series getting into this deep history of independent media and low power FM as it came to fruition in the nineties and the two thousands. And, yeah. and clearly, uh, you would be a great asset, uh, well, and you have a lot of history to share around that. Uh, so once again, uh, Steve Pierce, executive director of the media Alliance. Thank you for joining us here on radio survivor. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you again to listening to Radio Survivor for this week. We are here for the love of radio and sound and community radio and low-power FM. And it was a real pleasure to learn more in detail from Steve Pierce about that station, WOOCLP, in Troy, New York. A, you know, a, 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 a gem in the spectrum of low-power radio. And it's a, always a pleasure here on Radio Survivor. Yeah, there's a lot to learn from what they're trying to do there at uh, W-O-O-C. And if you want to follow up on anything we talked about on today's program, you can go to our show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Of course, that's where you can subscribe for free to the podcast to get it automatically downloaded into whatever application Free every like week. An hour of use. community radio news and events and public affairs and celebration and history. Free, free once a week at the, on your podcast app. Or on your local community radio station. We're yeah. heard on great stations like WOOC. And if you're at a station, you'd like to learn more about how 
you might air this program, go to radiosurvivor.com. This is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. Learn how you can help us do what we do. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. And finally, of course, we'd love to hear from you. We do get great ideas, inspirations, and feedback from listeners all the time. Drop us an email to podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Eric Klein and Jennifer Waits, for joining me, Paul Reese-Mandel, on another episode. Yeah, see you next week, everybody. And for the radio audience, we've said goodbye. For the internet audience, I think it's a useful time to let you know that um, what a pleasant surprise. It was probably easy to predict that Steve Pierce was a real, uh, a, a useful voice in our project that we're uh, attempting to mount to um, tell the story, to uh, describe the history, to get uh, do we call it an oral history? Do we call it a radio documentary project? We we need it's still coming together. And some you know what you're talking about is our effort to document the the, the history of independent media as it came together yeah. around media. the they- WTO. Uh, in 1999, Seattle, and also Low Power FM. These are these are events that are that are co-occurring and they and they work off each other. And it includes people doing pirate radio, includes people doing, as you heard in our interview today, doing public access television, doing community video, doing all sorts of independent media. And it kind of coalesced um, there in the 90s and the 2000s. It's a really unique moment of media making prior to YouTube, prior to the Facebook. You know, let alone forget about Facebook, you know, video streams that are now possible. This is just before before you could even post a message to a group of people that they could read on a on a corporation that everyone was using. This is all it all it all came together on the Internet uh, before these companies came along to define what social media was. The indie media. So we want to tell this story, and and Steve will be part of that. And and we talked a bit more about it, and that's right. that's on a bonus episode that all of our uh, Patreon subscribers and supporters can hear. So that's at Patreon.com/slash Radio Survivor. If you contribute at a dollar a month or more, uh, you will be able to hear this extra bonus material with with Steve Pierce, as well as past yeah bonus all our episodes. past bonus episodes, as well as our future. And you know, Steve. Pierce also in the bonus episode today, uh, we got deeper into the into the gritty details of of what microphones they give to their volunteers and how they organize a meeting and how they made this sustainable. Like yeah. it's all part of a story. That's right. Some very practical tips. Practical tips. Very, yeah. very practical tips on keeping these things sustainable. Um, but we need your help to to be to tell this history it, it's going to require a lot of interviews a lot of time some shoe leather some phone calls uh to weave together this narrative and bring together the voices of people who were there who helped create uh independent media and and ultimately sparked uh the biggest flowering of community radio that there has ever been that's happened uh, since the year 2000. Right. We, we yeah, need it's... to tell this story while the folks are, many of them still around and are able to talk with us. So we're looking for you to help us do that. We are looking to have a 100 supporters on Patreon by July one and starts it... at just a dollar. If you can give more, that helps out more, but we we need to have that money coming in so we can plan and do what we need to do to put in this extra work to document and tell this story. Go to patreon.com slash radio survivor. I just, uh, I guess I don't have to repeat the, the repeat the what's motivating me on this one, but just briefly, it's what indie media was. Uh, I, you know, it's 
the people that were making indie media in the 90s and the early aughts uh, contributed so much to what is still available to us here in at at the conclusion of the second so decade of the 21st century and as we head into the third decade of the 21st century those seeds really have grown into into trees these are healthy media organizations that exist because of this activism and these these people that were pushing for things and it's a story that um it's all happening it's all happening in like a really sub rosa i mean we here at radio survivor we talk about it as often as we do but um it's a history that 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 is threatened to be lost. Yeah, we especially want to build in the it. mainstream. There are maybe some master's theses and 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 academic papers that frankly aren't so accessible to the average person or to a Google search for that matter. Um, and we want to make this much more well known and out there. And and I'll note that we've got a special uh, gift to say thank you that we're going to make available for folks who are contributing at the five dollar level or more. And we'll be able to say more about that in the month of June but in the run-up to the July 1, but you can go ahead and get started right now at RadioSurvivor.com. I'm sorry, well, RadioSurvivor.com slash support is where you can find our Patreon link, but you can right. also go to Patreon.com slash RadioSurvivor. Because it's the internet, we can tell you, our listeners, to go to, to the Patreon page instead of yeah. tra- Th- going in. And lips. so thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>